Hi, this is Better Red Than Dead, a literature podcast from a left perspective. I'm Megan. I'm Tristan. I'm Katie. And today we are going to be talking about Joseph Andrews, which is Henry Fielding's 1742 novel about a hot, poor guy who the fancy ladies all want to motorboat or be motorboated by. Like, we weren't clear on the verb form. Um, And his adventures are on the English countryside. Also, dunking on Samuel Richardson and that asshole, Kali, somebody else pronounced that last name for me. Kali Simber. Oh, it's just, okay. I thought it was like some kind of weird Italianate bullshit. Nah, fuck that guy. (laughs) Chibber, what? (laughs) But first, we're very excited to welcome our guest host for this episode, friend to all creatures, true (laughs) comrade, David Diamond. David is the assistant professor of English at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, and and our resident fielding guy. <laughs> so David, tell us just a little bit about your academic interests or your teaching and why you wanted to read Joseph Andrews with us. Sure. Well, thank you uh, for having me, first of all. And I guess I'll, I'd start by saying Joseph Andrews sounded good to me because I'm sure that uh, Lillo's super famous play, The London Merchant, has already been taken. Uh, otherwise, <laughs> otherwise, I would have, yeah. <laughs> I would have, I would have asked for that. No, but this is this is one of the texts that introduced me as an undergraduate student to the the rollicking, weird, horny, variegated 18th century. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm hoping by I don't think it took much prodding, but by encouraging you all to discuss it, that I can pay that forward to the next generation of uh, rollicking, horny 18th centuryists. Um, so that, that, those, that's probably my my number one motivation. But also, this I, I would say that this of Fielding's major literary productions best expresses those views he holds that are uh, somehow a slant of orthodoxies, religious socioeconomic, etc., um, and so might be more interesting to you all than, say, Tom Jones. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'll, I'll say, I'll probably say more about this a little bit later, but it has, this book does, uh, direct relevance to my interests in early characterization, the entangled histories of the novel, religion, and secularism. Yeah, and I just wanted an excuse to reread it. <laughs> Awesome. Um, Katie's blood is all up because you said <laughs> yeah. religion and the novel. I know this has been uh, between Jonathan Edwards and, and this. This has been a, a kind of a banner a couple weeks for, for Katie. I know. It's an exciting time. David, I don't know if I ever told you, my, my parents actually met in a production of Lillo's The London Merchant in, in, in college. So um, What? Let's, yeah, let's do it. Yeah, my mom was Millwood. Uh, and my wait, dad wait, was. Wait, wait, wait. I, what, I, what I heard was my parents met at a performance of this weird no, no, play. No, no, no. no. Uh, but what you meant was they were in the weird play? Was he Barnwell? <laughs> Yeah, and it no, was uh, meant to be that. Uh, uh. 
so yeah, no, uh, it's awesome to have three 18th centuries on the show, right, Meg? Um, fine. <laughs> You're all fine. <laughs> yeah, and I was really excited that David wanted to come read Joseph Andrews with us because I also just fucking love fielding. He was part of one of my dissertation chapters that looked at mid-18th century satirists. Uh, Tobias Smollett was my other big guy in that one. You know, Smollett's great, and, and we're absolutely doing it on the show at some point, but, you know, i really stoked for fielding today. And, and I love fielding for a lot of reasons. Uh, one, he, yeah, he has the, the reputation and, you know, very central reputation in, in the whole rise of the novel narrative uh, that I think is well-deserved. I mean, he is a real innovator and uh, kind of characters, as David said, uh, which is great. But also, yeah, he's raunchy as hell. Uh, <laughs> and as our listeners will remember from the Tristram Shandy episodes, that that is, you know, again, David said this, a main reason why 18th century literature rules. I am always here to dunk on Samuel Richardson. And while I really don't give a shit about Kali Sibber, um, I do love how much Fielding hates him. That's that's cool. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, more seriously, I, I actually think Fielding's class politics, and particularly by the standards of the 18th century novel, are pretty good. Tom Jones, which was the you know book that in my dissertation chapter, is uh, probably slightly more ambivalent along those lines. But in Joseph Andrews, the rich suck pretty much across the board. Uh, they're always the targets of satire, and that's that's wonderful. And Fielding has a lot of really interesting and complex things to say about gender behind all the dick and boob jokes. So yeah, I'm I'm amped. This is this is gonna rule. Yeah, it is. I apparently am trying to be converted by certain members of this podcast <laughs> into being an 18th centuryist. Their method of doing this is making me read cool books like Tristram Shandy and not like dumb long books like Clarissa, which would not make a person into an 18th centuryist. And this is also a cool book, I have to admit, because it has like the best features of horny, madcap 18th century shenanigans in which ladies named Fanny, not that Fanny Assington, but she could be called that, <laughs> turn up unexpectedly and people lose all their clothes to highwaymen. And it's like they lose their clothes sort of a lot in this book. It hauls all the characters from the title of Tristan's dissertation, uh, <laughs> including but not limited to squires, parsons, booksellers, justices of the peace, <laughs> lawyers, and Aeschylus, of course, always making an appearance. <laughs> but the problem with this conversion, uh, this conversion narrative that Katie is trying to get me to undertake, is that becoming an 18th century person which is something I'm not doing at all, <laughs> is that it would require me to read Mr. Locke, friend of the pod, John Locke, <laughs> um, and Mr. Rousseau, and learn about bullshit, like what social contracts are. And I'll just remind everybody that like the most famous guys from this period of time are a guy who wrote a dictionary and then the guy who wrote a dictionary length biography of the first guy <laughs> cool yeah, how do you that, like the party and for that you're gonna make me stop watching fucking like cassavetti's movies to to join that club no way <laughs> First of all, the dictionary guy, Dr. Johnson, is actually cool. And you read Locke largely to duck on him if you're if you're into the political theory stuff. 
mean, I mean there, might, there might be a there might be versions of the 18th century and from what I'm hearing <laughs> Megan um, and understandably <laughs> yours is uh, comes from a certain tradition um, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that maybe maybe anchored in specific institutional affiliations that shall not be named. Um, so let's just keep an open mind to the many different and especially the many horny 18th centuries available to us. Here, here. I I accept that, but like I am humoring all of you. Really, like I'm going to be going back to like cuddling my copy of Naked Lunch and barking at the walls as soon as this is over. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, Megan, th- this part of the conversion narrative that we're in right now is a classic. Is the barking at the wall stage. <laughs> okay, this is, is that the, skept- the skepticism stage? Yeah, we progress through this reluctance, this denial of the truth that you're an 18th centuryist, and but you'll make it there to the promised land eventually. These are the early stages of your awakening to sin. and they're in sin in these novels absolutely (laughs) i'm just fairly certain that all of you have like only kept me on the track that david is talking about which is like the cool 18th century (laughs) and that there is a lot of not cool 18th century you can't be like oh go read afro ben and fucking lauren stern and you're gonna get all of it like i know <laughs> That's true. We could we could read Kali Sever, but dum dum, right? I mean, even that is better than the version I'm alluding to, in which literature, imaginative literature, matters only as a point of intersection with its much more fascinating disciplinary cognate philosophy or history of ideas. Uh, Cancelled. Whoever you're talking about. <laughs> No, not me. That's the important part. <laughs> I want to represent myself accurately as idiosyncratic and dumb in all the ways Fielding would appreciate. <laughs> Scholar of boob honking. <laughs> okay, Katie, why did you want to read this? Why? Because it's important to me to raise awareness to an issue that's close to my heart. You know, it's in service of the most maligned group in existence. The people who suffer more than anyone else, they lead the hardest lives. And yes, I'm talking about hot guys. It's hot guys. This <laughs> it's rough book, out there. <laughs> it's rough out there for hot guys. Joseph Andrews, I wanted to read this because I knew it was about the trials and travails of a guy named Joseph Andrews who sort of has two first names because he is as hot as at least two guys. Um <laughs> that's important i'll also say that my so i started going in i was i was sort of heating up but my passions truly became inflamed when i found out that joseph andrews is in fact from new jersey um we find (laughs) yes uh we find this out in chapter two um when we learn that everyone calls him little joey and uh and that little Joey rides horses better than anyone. So adults let him ride their horses for him, like at the racetrack. Playing the, play the ponies. Playing play the ponies. Um, it's true Garden State excellence. This is borne out by the fact that he later in the novel uh, decides he's, he can fight a guy wearing no pants. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's, he's ready to do yeah, it. Yeah, all right. Yeah, he's a Jersey guy. Yep. 
Yeah, he's a he's a Jersey guy. He's a Jersey guy, though. He's got some depth to him. Like he had to quit his job at the dog shelter because because his mouth was too pretty and and uh, <laughs> and uh, he can put his legs behind his head. Um, <laughs> these are all facts. Uh, and he ends up the tra- his his tragic fate at the beginning is to be a footboy, which is another sad thing that has happened to many hot guys uh, named Joey who maybe don't don't know so much. Um, <laughs> So I'm just excited to talk about this thrilling tale of a Jersey guy. Great pick. And uh, I'm very excited about it. <laughs> well, uh, not converted, but game. Um, okay. So today we are talking about religion and class in the novel. Cause of course, um, and we're talking about gender and its constructions of consent. So, David, will you give us the summary with discussion of the Madcap Adventures? I shall do my best, though after listening to Katie, I'm not sure uh, if I got this novel right. Uh, the Jersey <laughs> part escaped me, but let's see how we do and feel free to, to interrupt, correct, or otherwise inflect. So this is, uh, Joseph Andrews is the second entry by Henry Fielding in the Pamela novelistic universe, his first being a more ribald parody called Shamala, and it presents the adventures of an Adonic, or should we say, Priapic footman. <laughs> the, he is. He's compared to the statue of Priapus, who, yeah. uh, but he's too hot to do it. I think yeah. that's part of. Or his he sings too beautifully, so he attracts the birds rather than scares them away. But at any yeah. rate, I don't think the that that reference is meant just to invoke his inertness or his function as a human scarecrow. I think it also may refer to his sexual prowess and magnetism. Call me crazy. So anyway, said semi-animate statue is the super hot brother of the eponymous heroine of Samuel Richardson's very popular and controversial novel, Pamela or Virtue Rewarded. And it's the story essentially of his his traveling west from London to the countryside back to his parish where his uh, sweetheart equally hot uh, but in a feminine manner <laughs> Fanny Goodwill waits for him <laughs> or he oh thinks God. she's there waiting waiting for him so the reason he's making a journey from London is that he's been discharged from the service of the newly widowed lady Booby aunt by marriage to Pamela's Mr. B or Mr. Booby um, after he rejects her sexual advances. He had been a footman. She comes on to him several times. He resists and uh, she becomes angry and, and um, releases him from yeah, service. A, a pr- pretty, pretty textbook workplace sexual harassment is, you know, is what we're talking about here, right? Yes. And he, and yeah, so <laughs> his, his route back to her country seat, which is where the parish where he's apparently been, been raised, um, I guess, or where he's, where he's worked for it while he's been in service, mostly um, it intersects with that of the curate. Parson Abraham Adams, who is a paragon of good nature and inadvertency, and one of my favorite 18th century fictional characters. They meet at an inn under the sign of the dragon, of course, where Joseph is recovering from injuries received at the hands of highwaymen. Uh, they make their way together for a time, at least. Uh, and they took all his clothes. They took they, every right, stitch of clothing. <laughs> yes, what? which, yeah. yeah. 
Of course, well, that as you do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, so, so does that sound right? I'm still waiting for New Jersey to come up, but <laughs> I mean, let, you know, let me know. I think it's past because little Joey was in the beginning. That's what uh, Lady Booby calls him. So these two friends are making their way uh, together for a time until they're separated by uh, – Adams's aforementioned inattentiveness. He, Adams, by chance, rescues Fanny Goodwill, who is on, actually on her way to intercept little Joey from an <laughs> attempted rape. And those two are reunited with Joseph on the road at a different alehouse inn. I can't remember which of the, the two designations applies there. Their uh, various misadventures from that point forward are too dizzying for me, at least to... Um, map out in short order, but uh, let's say, and correct me if I'm wrong, that altogether the the vignettes that comprise the rest of their romp through Somersetshire demonstrate serve to demonstrate the hypocrisy, predatory sexuality, malfeasance, and general corruption of uh, various vocations and institutions, while also showing the occasional acts of heartwarming solidarity among members of the lower orders of society. Yeah, and that I, I will. I, we're, I'm sure we'll talk about this later. But that that was really notable to me reading that the that the people who are the monster. I mean, the it, it, the that the high that well, yeah. I mean, the high women are, I guess, a different class. But yeah, I mean, it's like the innkeepers. It's certainly like the landed gentry, uh, lawyers, other than Abraham Adams, the clergy. Like these are the targets of satire, not laborers in the working class. Um, and which, which I do think is is. I mean, well, it's not that no other 18th century satire does that. But I thought that that was a kind of much more pronounced kind of class valence here than I had remembered and that I think you do see in a lot of other kind of 18th century satires. Including other works by, by Fielding. Uh, yeah, like to- Tom agree, Jones, yeah. Where, where I think you can see something more like the consolidation of uh, liberal hegemony mm-hmm. uh, rather than whatever this madness is. Yeah, I completely agree. <laughs> yeah. Katie, were you not mad when um, Parson Adams abandons his horse? And by abandons, I mean forgets. Well, you know, sometimes when one's mind is on more uh, spiritual matters, you know, even the horse girl who lives in me understands that. Uh, Who among us hasn't left behind a beloved pet or pack animal while reading Aeschylus? (laughs) Yes, it's happened. I can't count the number of horses I've lost. (laughs) <laughs> to, to various to various Classic, figures. classical <laughs> tragedians yeah <laughs> I, I the other so the one important message also that this novel gets across that i don't think we'll get to talk about is that um the french are very dangerous oh yes um, mm-hmm. oh yes it, well that's yeah, i mean even by our, proxy like <laughs> like as the contaminating influence carried as if on the skin and breath of yeah. the english people and predominantly young men who have in their travels been exposed to the disease of frothy Frenchness. Yes. Fr- French <laughs> yes, clothing. We, we, yes. Fr- yes, we don't we don't want any of that. We don't want any of that. I think that my favorite guy Adams is just fantastic, but my other favorite guy is the like Frenchified guy who shows himself to be a villain by trying to seduce a, a poor young woman who is actually uh after him too and then when her other boyfriend comes in he decides what he'll do is hum opera and (laughs) dance around the room 
and show off his clothes and like do a little Mayor Pete dance. And that's how we know that um, the French are bad yep. and we shouldn't be like that. Yes. Be- Bellarmine and Lenora is that little vignette. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I have, I have left out of my summary so far, various interpolated narratives. Uh, the funniest of which is an aborted one that involves Adams's uh, near drown youngest son reading aloud. <laughs> and that just gets cut off. Yeah. yeah. But yes. that, like the, 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 the story of Mr. The history of Mr. Wilson makes sense for reasons I will disclose because I've been informed that spoilers are good and cool on this yep. show. Bellarmine uh, or Bellarmine and uh, Horatio and Lenora narrative bears maybe more attention because it serves fewer, say, obvious thematic or or concrete plot points. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at any rate, I can, I can, if those spoilers remain good and cool, just wrap things up because I'm sure everyone really wants to know, like, what happens once these three people are all making their way we together. Do, and you yes. have to talk about the end because it's absolutely bananas. It's amazing, yeah. Yes, many an undergraduate has uh, has objected, <laughs> just straight up objected to its existence. To the end of this book? <laughs> at least. Yeah, don't no, that's not that's not how it ends. <laughs> that sort of that sort of reaction. Um, that's how books work though. Yeah, but you know why well, no, yeah, please take us there cuz one thing I want to ask you now is why what the what, what their specific objection to this Bakker's ass ending is. <laughs> I mean, it's less interesting than the ending itself, so I'll start there. The objection is it's stupid and can't have happened. <laughs> <laughs> oh. That, uh, that's hard for uh, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us what happens at the end because this is like, it's so good. I loved it so much. So, uh, Joseph and Fanny, once everybody gets back to the parish, face a series of obstacles to their intended nuptials, the most prominent of which are Lady Booby's return to her country seat, where she uses her interference. And, and she's abetted by uh, a sham lawyer and a corrupt magistrate and trying to get Joseph Andrews and Fanny removed so that they can't be an encumbrance, of course, on the parish. Uh, but then, more shockingly, it is revealed temporarily that Fanny and Joseph are brother and sister. <laughs> oh. For you see, Fanny was is the daughter of the Andrewses. And she is the third sibling in mm-hmm. the Pamela, Joseph, and now Fanny triad. Uh, it's the long-lost sister, thanks, of course, to itinerant peoples that are described in this uh, novel as gypsies. Because the Andrews show up at complete rant. They just like land in this book, deus ex machina style. They're also prevented mm-hmm. from uh, getting down by their proclivity for being virtuous and staring at each other and breathing heavily. Right. I mean, that's the impediment to their, it it looks at this point in the story that I'm retelling, like uh, a fortunate happenstance that they're both too committed to the ideal of chastity Mm. or virginity to uh, make sex on each other, which they very (laughs) badly wish to do, and which makes complete sense since literally everyone who meets either of them also wants to do that with or to them. Yes. Yes. I have a theory about this. I think that it's some kind of like a a mushroom that emits like a cloud that (laughs) introduces an ambient sort of like horniness into the air that Mm. uh, somehow – I mean, there were brother and sister sort of worked perfectly with that and it kind of gets foiled, but – 
Maybe yeah. that's what that's what I think. Yeah. I do think that theory has some has could get some traction, Katie, because uh, yeah, I do I do think the idea of Joseph Andrews's mushroom <laughs> emitting an ambient <laughs> horniness makes some sense. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, good news, everyone. The conflict is resolved when, by a series of fortuitous happenstances and uh, stage-like appearances of previously minor characters, we learn that Joseph Andrews is not an Andrews at all. He's actually the the long-lost, uh, also an abducted child. He, too, has been abducted by the quote-unquote gypsies and then switched with the infant Fanny. Uh, so he's actually the son of Mr. Wilson, uh, the reformed rake turned gentleman subsistence farmer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they can confirm this because that child and this Joseph, little Joey, both have strawberry birthmarks on their breasts, which can be attributed, of course, to the uh, ungratified desire his mother had to eat strawberries ah. when she was pregnant with him. Mm. Well, of course. <laughs> this adds up. Yeah. So Fanny is Pamela's sister, but but jo- Joseph's kind of natural, uh, fully intelligible gentility um, is is finally legitimated insofar as he is the son of someone of an order of gentlemanliness, if mm-hmm. not you know, the gentility itself. And the hot young couple can get married and take up residence near and adopt the manner of living of Mr. Wilson. And they get free money (laughs) rained on them for some reason. (laughs) Yeah. And I just want to like say one one thing to kind of again foreground some of the kind of class discussions. Um, David, what you said absolutely right. The, the, uh, this idea that Joseph's kind of like so I, okay. So uh, a lot of novels, including Tom Jones, other things Fielding wrote, they play with the idea of like class ascendancy and class mobility. But then there is often this bid to like okay, oh someone's like a foundling, but oh it turns out that they're actually like the illegitimate child of like the gentleman or what have you, which is what this does. But I will say like. The, the kind of deus, deus ex machina element of it and the kind of comedy around it to me is so pronounced that I think it kind of does self-consciously call attention to that instability. It does something that a lot of other 18th century novels do with that, but I also feel like it kind of makes the ground on which that is working kind of deliberately shaky. Yeah, especially since the correspondence that, that this model uh, posits also shows up in Fanny, whom other characters assume to be of a higher social rank than she actually occupies, but who is, in fact, like Pamela, born into uh, the world of menial laborers. Mm -hmm. So so to the extent that she is also a figure of of ethical goodness as opposed to social greatness, then you still have that operative. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just less. Yeah, it's it's. Yeah, so I agree. It's 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 less steady in its response to that trope than um, Fielding's other works. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's funny how we get that a little, which is that she she gets slightly more described, which means she's slightly less hot. So she's got like the little smallpox scar on her chin, but it looks like a dimple, so it's cute. But we get more of that stuff that like suggests maybe. Yeah, something's right. going on. Oh, right, and her teeth are not perfectly even, though they are white. Whereas Joseph's teeth are both even and white. Yeah, huh? Yeah. So, but yeah. even her imperfections are charming. Yes, she's particularized. 
um, but that but whether that makes her more or less hot, I do think is an interesting question. It for makes her more hot. No, I mean, I, for, I'm 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 rating her too. So um. <laughs> that's so you're like a you're saying. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. No, I'm saying, but I think I think one of them's a uh, one of them's an eight and one's a nine, but at different yeah. times, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like <laughs> it has to do with the motorboating variable. Yeah. Yes. Right. I mean, he cannot. Uh, Joseph cannot compete. It sounds like on that in that category, but he does have very shapely thighs. And broad right. shoulders that somehow do not inhibit graceful movement, which is unusual in the period. <laughs> oh, sexy, very sexy. Okay, so David, do give us the context of this lovely series of adventures. Gladly. So there's there's scholarly context, which is interesting to me, um, and which we might want to discuss. And then there's there's more immediate context for composition that's actually more fun. So let me start with the less exciting stuff, or less exciting to the general audience, but but plenty exciting to me. So Tristan uh, has already recognized that Fielding's contributions to the to the history of the form are well recognized, quite and, and immense. But he's often represented Fielding is as uh, the the progenitor of a certain specific genealogy within the form that's kind of turned into a withered branch on the larger family tree of the novel. So and that's a that's a genealogy that's oriented around superficial characterization. It's identified by its interest in more like sociological as opposed to psychological questions. So in in the meta histories that are still quite prominent in the in rise of the novel scholarship fielding occupies an important place but more as a a counterpoint to samuel richardson who provides us with a blueprint for not just the richly psychologized interiority of the novel as we recognize it today but also something like modern subjectivity that's shaped by the secularization and aggressive privatization of belief and the um, the advent of modern economic thought. So all I'm trying to say here is that Fielding takes a place, an important place in this teleology, but it's as a, a competing force that, that's eventually displaced by a trajectory, again, defined by interiorized character that will kind of reach its pinnacle in the 19th century, first with Austin and then really crystallizing with, say, George Eliot. So Fielding is, is in all of these accounts, something other than that. And nevertheless, interesting. But Richardson made possible the true bullshit of the like billion page novel that George Eliot then is like, that sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> right, though Elliot herself was an admirer of Fielding, interestingly, yeah. and and her she's narrators. Good. Yes, <laughs> also George Eliot is good. I just think those books are too yeah. long. Right, yeah. yeah, they are, but they're not as long as Clarissa. Nothing no. is as long as God. Clarissa. And I've got I've got all my Penguin editions in my bookshelf in front of me, and I'm just looking at that fucking behemoth and still mad about it. <laughs> <laughs> How long is the audio book? <laughs> God, five days. I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure. Sh- I'm sure it's the. I'm sure it's the biggest one. I think there's one way to think about the Fielding's place in this intellectual tradition, which is um, that he is daddy, but we are not baby. 
<laughs> if I'm correctly understanding your meaning there, or maybe maybe some maybe George Eliot is baby. I don't. I don't. I'm just trying to. I'm just trying to connect with the Gen Z. And I. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, the good news is we don't have to. We don't have to work so hard to make this um, post Weberian argument transparent because it's fundamentally bullshit. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So, so I'm just trying to set things up without without making like without giving the elevator pitch for my book, which pushes against this, this trajectory by foregrounding the endurance and just like mere in the in the like Robinson Crusoe sense or the the fielding sense of like mere Englishman, like just like. Mm-hmm. Pure, primitive, sort Dumb of. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's sure. not what, it's, yeah. what Robinson I mean, Crusoe is. Well, I know, I know you've had you you enjoy Robinson Crusoe for sure. So I don't want to be misunderstood as uh, aspersing that fine text and uh, <laughs> character. Yeah, I mean, Drake Crusoe is a dumb guy. We we can we can all agree with that. Uh, yeah. So so yeah. So anyway, I, I'm trying to. I, I, what I would hope that that anyone who reads this book would take away from it is just that it, it's the characters in it are neither richly psychologized nor stable. Mm-hmm. There, there's a there's a an explicitly articulated typology at work here, or at work at least in some instances. Um, that's nevertheless super weird. And so the, the, that's the, like, as a scholar, the story that I'm trying to tell is about that persistent weirdness and its endurance so that we can just stop saying over and over again that the novel follows a trajectory, a slow and steady march from circulating surfaces that are intelligible and compensate for the, the exotic items that are appearing in the marketplace or for the the uncertainty inherent to uh, economic life under capital and all that stuff but rather they were always weird they always reflect ideological fissures and they can do that without like foisting psychological depth onto narratives that that can't support it yeah and i mean my my uh, i mean you've thought much more deeply about the the kind of problems inherent in that critical narrative than i have but but my sense of it is that like someone like ian watt who really does who tells that story of the you know the, the novel realism and that interior psychology second appearance on the like, podcast I, ian watt Second appearance on the podcast. That's right. Actually, you, <laughs> I think you, yes, prompted the first time by you, Megan. Uh, kind of asking about how Stern fits into it, but like, uh, th- like it kind of works well as like a bird's eye view of a genre against previous genres. But when you actually try to apply it in a kind of coherent way to any individual example, there's just a lot of stuff that does not fit into that. And it just, it gets a lot more complex um, when you actually do try to like kind of zoom in on any specific example, particularly a good example, like fielding or, you know, Stern or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's well, I mean, it's, it's, it, it, that argument is clearly one, it clearly comes from a time and we've, we've moved past it as a Mm -hmm. profession, I'm sure when you started with an argument and then you you cherry picked evidence to support it. I mean, I'd yeah, also yeah. hear you saying, David, that there is a certain strain of 18th century scholar who hates fun. <laughs> <laughs> I well, if that's what you are hearing, there's nothing I can do about that. <laughs> but uh, that's certainly something that I would not say. I mean, I don't go to ASEX anymore, so I'll say it for you. I don't mean nobody. <laughs> I don't mean everybody hates fun. I just mean that there is a. Segment. 
Well, there is. I mean, I, I think that that is a good point to the extent that, like, mid twentieth century, there was. So the the nineteenth century still critics, dress up at your conferences. <laughs> I have never done that. You can't prove it. There are there's no photographic evidence. Yeah. Uh, that I, yes, I I could certainly vouch for that. But uh, but no, like there was a nice like nineteenth century critics. Uh, hated the 18th century because it was too ribald or what the fuck ever, or it was too messy. Like they didn't do like novel characters the way Victorian critics thought they they would. That idea is still very much alive in mid 20th century criticism about the 18th century, which is kind of remarkable. And yes, fortunately, we are several decades past that at this point. Yeah, except except insofar as the field has finally started to turn back toward religion and away from the mainline secularization thesis, mm-hmm, yeah. uh, which it is very, very, very bad at doing. Mm-hmm. Um, it does, it, it does in ways that regard religion, not as uh, as something socially constructed specifically through the process of secularization and secularism as it's been made newly legible by like anti-colonialist and queer scholarship where it looks for religion that it can excavate from secular forms whether that be the novel or um you know georgic poetry or something else um mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. so it's it's a few it's still it may we may have progressed past the, that the assumption that that our own object of study is in fact the bad object and we and all having victorian envy um <laughs> but we are a few decades we as a field are remain a few decades behind say american studies in our even our definition of what it means to be religious or to be mm-hmm. secular mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. katie is that true i don't know it seems like a different version of religious or secular than i know anything about I mostly know about American Protestantism, which is its own beast. And so in terms of larger, cur- like larger currents, yeah, yeah. But America is a weird, like a weird one, because a lot of the wacky stuff and the sexy stuff comes from all the religion stuff. So mm-hmm. it, they're not they're not quite so easy to like, I don't know, um, even if you really, really, really hate fun, it's hard <laughs> to know that there are all of these novels about like nuns on the run and nefarious Mormons <laughs> and say that there's no, you know, relationship going on there. Yeah, yeah. Right. But that's, that's the point. I think we're, we have trouble. We, uh, scholars of 18th century Britain or, or British culture or the literatures of British empire circa 1660 to 1830 are, are just having some trouble moving past the dialectic that secularism itself instantiates. So it becomes a question of recuperating religion as if it's something real in the world, maybe attenuated by the forces of modernization, but but nevertheless something that we can we can actually dig up and pull back out. We can find the religion that's there in modernity. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think, um, at least in my understanding, the the point is to understand how uh, categories like true religion and then eventually secularism are constituted in the first place, and never. In never as being truly separate in experience or, or naturalized, it sounds like, the, right? This, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. And, and hence the yeah. What we're talking about is what 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 I think Watt talks about when he refers to secularization is like a, a historical process. Whereas when I talk about secularization, kind of dr- drawing on those other archives, scholarly archives that I mentioned, is a set of discursive operations. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, so both religion and uh, both the religious and the secular are constituted through operations of power, um, through like strategies of uh, various ideologies, including empire, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to like being these pre-existing real things or being a pre-existing real thing that gets displaced by some uh, an attitude that's or a posture or a subjectivity that's that's uh, more compatible with the uh, <laughs> the the violences of of capitalism. Mm-hmm. No, that, that's awesome, and I want to hear both both you and Katie uh, tell tell us more about that specific stuff and like the, the how kind of religion helps us with with that in the novel. But I also just really because I don't think we're going to have get a chance to talk about it. I just want to hear who Fielding was mad at in this novel and why he hated Kali Sipper so much. <laughs> yeah, that's, also, what, that's actually I told you the more exciting stuff was yeah. the immediate context. And, also, and he made Richardson really sad, right? Because Richardson's like, "You hate all my stuff," and Fielding's like, "Oh no, dude! Like Clarissa's good." <laughs> he liked Clarissa. <laughs> I mean, you only need to read Amelia, uh, Fielding's last and supposedly favorite. He called it his favorite child, his favorite, uh, the the favorite offspring of, of his uh, fecund mind. And you only need to read that last book, which is not good, but which is good to think with, to see that he was really moved by Clarissa, not necessarily by Pamela. But even in Joseph Andrews, compared to Shamala, yeah. you can see some. You can see something more like a friendly poking as opposed to outright satire or ironic treatment there's some like pamela doesn't come off as well as she does in her, in her own telling uh, but but mr b seems far less terrible than than he might have been in, in fielding's representation so i think it's really someone like sibber who comes in for for more scrutiny. And I just wanted to say a little bit for the very few members of your audience who are unfamiliar with Kali Sibber. Uh, I'm an 18th century. This was, this was about? Yeah, I'm a 18th century. I barely know who Kali Sibber is. I mean, so right, because he's not. I mean, like his, his contributions are more secondhand. Like he, yeah. as the butt of many good jokes, he's mm. memorable. But for his own performances and productions less so but he was he was something like an eminent uh theater figure let's mm-hmm. let's say that who who was the poet laureate i believe at the time that fielding composed this but they were fielding seems to have been really really pissed that after the licensing act of 1737 that the Walpole administration pushed forward specifically to silence Fielding's critique of their policies <laughs> and nice. personalities. So, yeah, so it was an act of like it was an act specifically meant to silence Fielding, and it it effectively ended his um, successful theatrical career because he was a playwright first, which you can probably tell if you're if you're reading Joseph Andrews. There's a lot of uh, dramatic uh, influence mm-hmm. on display. But Sibber said, I mean, I'm sure they had other points of disagreement. But Sibber said of the act, he supported it because people like Fielding would otherwise collapse all social distinction and throw England into a, like a, a form of social chaos. So he supported, in his um, more conservative vision, he supported the administrative the administration's efforts to quiet Fielding's critiques and and their and their broader harm. I mean, they have no choice mm-hmm. but to make fun of him, as far as I can tell from that description yeah yeah no totally yeah yeah so he doesn't seem he doesn't seem like he was great and um there are a lot there are other (laughs) reasons for that like his his disowning his daughter um who wrote a much more interesting autobiography 
which has lots of uh, cross-dressing and sexual ambiguity and interesting stories about uh, her life as, as an actor, whereas his is very hard to read. And I think that yeah. should be clear to you without having picked it up if you just take Fielding's narrator at his word. Well, yeah, and no, and, and I like so while his relationship to Richardson is quite complex, and like, yeah, he writes Shabla like almost as soon as Pablo is published, which is just this hilarious like fucking screed against it. But this is like, I mean, this is like a really kind of rich reimagining of certain sorts and addition of certain characters. The Kali Sibber jokes in this are amazing. It's like, oh, someone needs to teach Kali Sibber how to re- write English, but they're just <laughs> they're just so like, I mean, I, I joke I was making before we started. Started was it's like uh the ale at this inn sucks but not as much as that asshole Kali <laughs> Sibber I hope he fucking dies <laughs> I mean you're not far from the it's basically the logic of most of those insults it's oh, like fruit. something it's yeah. great. something smells terribly here but not as terribly as Kali Sibber after a night on the town <laughs> I, I I saw him go to the restroom, Mark gentleman, and I was like, uh, "That's not for you, sir." Because get it, the gentleman. Oh. <laughs> I believe you're looking for the restroom for assholes. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, what I, I have never, I'd never heard of this guy before. But what I gleaned from this introduction to him and from Joseph Andrews is that he never took his pants off once in his life he was a he was pants all the time he's going to the bathroom he's doing it his, everything is pants 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 he's a pants guy we're talking about Kali Sibber still yeah <laughs> yeah he's a never nude yeah. yes yeah because yeah. everybody in this novel takes their pants off fairly regularly yeah there are always nudes and never nudes those were the two political parties in eight, mid-1830 <laughs> and some of them had wigs on and some of them didn't yeah, that right. produced some schisms well look my central thesis here is the unifying element of my of my research and and even my professional identity is that religion and pantslessness are not incommensurate (laughs) at least not for mid-18th century writers and that's what i'm saying is your book titled does religion religion with your pants on without your pants on so the book is called (laughs) does religion need pants Uh, it's called prayers and penises (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> rad i'm gonna pre-order that no no it's still it's still much boringly uh much much less interestingly called character after calvin but but character after calvin has a lot of sex in it including sexy catholic priests and uh and other sexy denominations and including fielding who who at least on my reading is is by strict affiliation a member of the the liberal Anglican orthodoxy of the day, but in the way that he imagines and uh, coordinates religious concepts, is um, is is something else, some more, something uh, something more, um, I guess, doctrinally anti-orthodox, and that makes him interesting to me because it, it because it's partly illustrative of the weirdness of uh, religious imagination in this period when it's supposed to be following a pretty clear trajectory from the the social to the individual and generally in in that in in that same movement toward diminishment or even extirpation mm-hmm. um, it, it's very weird but it doesn't go away and it isn't even really embedded embedded <laughs> embedded. 
In bed id. Katie, do you have th- you have this like the question about Providence though that you keep that you've talked about before though? Oh, I mean that's kind of like my old chestnut uh from from Robinson Crusoe and we get it here too even more goofily. So in Robinson Crusoe, Robinson keeps bringing up Providence and how he doesn't want to stray too far outside the bounds of Providence as he's always doing it. And in this book it happens like a little more interestingly than that even. So we've got like all of these debates about Providence and what what it means you can and can't do. So sometimes it's like, yeah, it was Providence that I kicked the shit out of that guy. And other times it's like, oh, well, if you just sit around like with your dick in your hand, that's Providence. (laughs) Like God can intervene and that can be Providence too. So it's Mm -hmm. like this catch-all term that refers to something like, you know, like what's meant to be uh, live, laugh, love, and and let it happen. But I think there's a way that the novel itself like disrupts that in all the digressions and all of the weird coincidences, which look like providence, but are actually meant to draw attention to how wacky that idea is. Yeah, that's is. what I was thinking, is that it actually seems like a different novel would have that be providential, but this one is like, mm, that's kind of like silly. Yeah, well, it like makes fun of the idea that these things are are provi- are providence. It's like, also like yeah. the way that this. I mean, David, this probably is like one of those things that's too obvious for 18th century scholars. Although I don't know, but it's very like aware of its bookness, so it's not ever doing that. Like this is providence because we're trying to pretend that this is a duplication of life. Like, I, and I'm not saying like. That that's bad or that these are that that's some reflection on character, but it is a hyper. It's aware of itself. Oh yeah, it, uh, yeah, and that that literariness and the and the lack of self seriousness. What my main complaint with Amelia, I mean, it's just it's not meant to be funny, so that's part of the problem. But it's also <laughs> it, it also kind of uh, by that time, seventeen fifty one, I think he publishes that the the emergent. Uh, self-conscious form of the novel had just absorbed Richardson's self-seriousness. Mm-hmm. And um, and this this novel, to, on my reading, does not have that. It's playful even with those positions that uh, that uh, the narrator espouses unironically and in lockstep with Fielding's own attitudes as, as they've been very well documented by previous generations of scholars who did that sort of work that I don't want to do, pouring through correspondence and digging into archives and reading every issue of the various periodicals that, that Fielding wrote and published. These they, they all kind of confirm that a lot of the positions that kind of come in for gentle nudging or humor, including providentialism, they are nevertheless Fielding's positions. It's, it's so uh, my on my take on this and and I haven't I haven't um, paid as much attention to that strain, the the the, the relation of narration, like narrative form and um, and even like self-theorizing or imminent critique of narrative on the one hand and providentialism on the other hand, uh, because it's been done in relation to fielding. So there are some, I mean, I can certainly recommend, I'm sure everyone's going to be emailing you to get some, some <laughs> cool scholarship recs. Of course. And I can definitely, I can definitely point all of your listeners and, and all of you fine hosts to the various um, be spectacled, bow tie wearing uh, dudes from the '80s who wrote about this. <laughs> that um, is a burn on someone, and I know who it is. You're, yeah, oh, you're the only one. 
<laughs> but yeah. uh, but uh, no, well, and also David, we're just going to wreck your ELH article, so uh, <laughs> which will tell everyone all they need to to know. Well, about. it'll have it, it'll it may have it, it will say something, as I recall, about about Providence as one of the arms of Calvinistic or deter- of, I guess like the, that's that version of whatever Protestant denomination insists on um, determinism as opposed mm-hmm. to individual agency. Mm-hmm. I think Fielding is trying to balance both. Um, and that's why things are funny when there are characters who, who just like interpret every little detail as evidence of not necessarily favor, but just like as something that God intended. And that's part of a, a predetermined plan. And therefore it's something that we have to accommodate ourselves to against our instincts and our natural reactions. Mm -hmm. That's why we laugh at Abraham Adams when he spends pages telling uh, telling Joseph when they're both tied to bedposts <laughs> and Fanny has been yeah. abducted with the explicit intention of rape. And, and Joseph is tearing out his flesh and his hair. And Abraham Adams is like, now, now, son, uh, I'm not surprised that you're reacting like this, but you need to calm down now because, uh, you know, everything that happens happens for a reason. And uh, and none of us is, is without sin. So maybe this is punishment for something you did. And on and on yeah. it goes. Right. Yeah. But then he can't act. He doesn't actually live that principle. So even yeah. if in the most abstract version of Fielding's religious thought, you get something like a providentialist argument, he's attentive to the the times the degree to which it needs to be softened or or like made to harmonize with more like obvious and visceral human qualities and responses. And so we laugh at him, but we still recognize him as virtuous and even having that opinion. Uh, but we laugh at him when he thinks his son has died and he has, you know, ha- has a, a paroxysm of, of uh, rage and sadness. I think this mm-hmm. is also like what, like, it's just so hard to think of this as being real people not just because that's how books work yeah. but also because like uh <laughs> here, it's, here. it's just absolutely wild and i'm only gonna like i'm gonna mention mm-hmm. this on every episode we ever do again but like it's the it's the version of like how could you not get this that the person who had my version of tristram shandy before me had circled the four asterisks when they're talking about like the wrong end of a woman and says, what does this represent? (laughs) And I was like, Oh no. no. (laughs) Choose your own adventure, buddy. Well, no. And, and, and I do like, so I I think that um, the, as I've said, I think that the, the sort of like Providence idea opens up uh, some of the things that I was really interested in, in terms of how this novel envisions the social and the economic. And I haven't thought nearly as uh, deeply about the kind of doctrinal uh, and theological stuff as, as uh, either David or, or Katie, but I did notice like, just in terms of like kind of representations of certain versions of like the church that come in for attack. In, in, in this and like so anyone who is like a kind of fancy church of england man right uh like who's not a curate and a curate was basically like somebody that the parish parson hired to like preach so that they didn't have to do it anyone who's at that kind of higher level like there's this one guy who's right is it mr parson turnbull or something like that 
Trulliber. Trulliber, that's right. Yeah, no, like, so, right. So, uh, so a- Adams has run out of money because uh, he always has. And he's like, oh, I hear there's, I'm going to go visit the local parson, uh, you know, M- Mr. Trulliber. And he goes there. And this guy's just this fucking like money grubbing asshole. And, he, and as soon as he finds out Adams is there to get money, he's like, I don't even believe you are clergy. I'll have you arrested. Um, so, like, the, the kind of like avariciousness with the sort of like more kind of central church figure is super present. But then, like, on the flip side, Adams is also really mad at George Whitfield and Methodism, uh, which, you know, we talked a little bit about uh, last week with, with Jonathan Edwards, right? But, you know, Methodism is very associated with the kind of like working class and, and, and women and, and, and other kind of, you know, like sort of marginalized groups. Um, and, and Adams is like partially sympathetic to it. Uh, he likes uh, Whitfield's uh, critique of like the Church of England, but he's like, oh, but a doctrine of grace alone, I can't go that far. Even though he then sort of like parrots that kind of thing. And then, as you say, David, like he he also in parody that it comes in for yeah, but you don't practice this shit either, dude. <laughs> right. Well, so he also goes way farther actually than Whitfield goes, like with the because he says like, oh, actually, you know, a person who's not who's not Christian and lives a life that's in line with Christian principles, I like that guy. Adam Adam says um, he, that that guy I think is good, mm-hmm. and I think that's like way farther than. Well, that's way farther than anything I've ever heard Whitfield have to say, but I've barely heard anything Whitfield actually has to say directly Mm. from him because his sermons suck so bad written down that... um, Oh, well, no. No. (laughs) He's no Jonathan Edwards. As as someone who has has read all of Whitfield's sermons for the (laughs) aforementioned article. uh, Yeah, because my... So that, that part of that book chapter that has appeared in print is is uh, largely about how the calvinistic understanding of character if not its its specific doctrinal moorings uh persists even in the or makes its way even into the imagination the writings of, of someone like fielding who um denounces the 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 Whitfield strain of Methodism specifically because of its Calvinism. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's some. I mean, there's there's a surprising, I guess you could say, theological or at least characterological affinity at work. But you've but but you're right, Katie, that he he certainly goes farther than Whitfield does because he's so committed to justification by works, which mm-hmm. is which is so he attributes fairly or unfairly to Whitfield, essentially antinomianism, right? the right. extreme version of predestinarian uh, theology that that did make its way from uh, Calvinist dissenting traditions to at least that strain of Methodism, but maybe not in the extreme doctrinarian form that uh, that Adams ascribes to to Whitfield. Um, so that so it's not so certainly, but he's so committed to works that he that he and this is something that I'm interested in and had forgotten about until I reread it that he he walks his way to a, a kind of pluralism by a, mm-hmm. by a, positing a religious virtue that is in no way connected never mind to like this the sectarian controversies within protestantism or mm-hmm. or different evangelical strains but but to christianity as an entire system of belief the, he concedes yes. that it's not totalizing and that's sort of surprising from a, an adherent to the forms of the church and a member in good standing of that uh, anglican orthodoxy yeah, he. If everybody is is uh, is Adams, like you, you wouldn't. Who needs mm-hmm. grace? Right. 
or grace is already i mean grace is is sort of self-evident in his in his preternatural good-naturedness yeah right. you don't need to do the kind of introspection or the kind of uh communal accreditation that strict calvinists had to do to police the boundaries of ecclesiastical polity because everybody could just be this like ox knuckle fisted weirdo <laughs> bounding around the English countryside, falling off horses with no harm to him. I mean, Tristan knows this from seminars in, in the many years past that I've, I've sort of identified with his physical robustness, which compensates <laughs> for his lack, his total lack of perspicacity. Yeah. I find that really charming. I don't yeah. know that all readers will or do. No. Uh, what did you, what do you, what do you all think? Do you like Adams or, or are you tired of his shtick? Oh, I, he's, his groans. Oh, he's so good. <laughs> no, I love it. How about Megan? What do you think I mean, about Adams? I, I mean, this is like, because of the thing we've been talking about, which is like, I like him because I like his position in this novel and the sort of like plot points that he inaugurates. Not do I like him as yeah. a person? That's not what he's that's not how I think of him, well, right. right? Like I like the <laughs> sure. scene near the end that David's talking about where he's like, Go on, horsey, and then it goes too fast and he falls off. <laughs> like that's <laughs> fucking great. I and I love the scene with the there he's tied to the bedpost and he's like, Hey, guy, you know what? <laughs> calm down <laughs> yes cal- yeah calm down that yeah that your your girlfriend has been like abducted but but i do like i do think that like adams is kind of a hero to, to sort of like to kind of get to the, the 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 kind of class critique right i do think adams is a hero uh in, in this novel because of his sort of like kind of anti-orthodox weirdo position because i do think that like one thing this novel is pervasively skeptical towards and i think you probably see this in its skepticism to any sort of hardline doctrinal position as well is structures of power like i mean i think that that is one like and it doesn't regardless of where it's coming from whether it's coming from like theology and the church whether it's coming from economics and the kind of new like kind of landed gentry class that's being produced like what have you that is something that the novel throughout is 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 mad about um and there's i mean just a couple scenes i want to kind of like throw out there uh one is uh, like one of the many uh actually the the people that end up kidnapping fanny uh again for you know for you know attempted rape um the the like at one point like the, but before that happens the 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 squire like the local gentleman guy he invites them over to dinner and he just basically through a series of practical jokes has his like his kind of lackeys beat the shit out of adams yeah. like over and over like he's a, he's a huge asshole i mean and it telegraphs as such but one other moment that i want and you know so that that's kind of a low is that the example, same one where but, they're like sit on the throne sir and then or the one where yeah. he like Oh man, I know I've talked about Buster Keaton bits recently, but where the guy pulls out his chair from under him is just like Yeah, man. and when they put a firecracker yeah. on his coat. Yes, yeah. That's I mean, the, and, and, all the same episode. It's a it's a practice called roasting. <laughs> yes, it <laughs> <Yeah>. is. <laughs> yes. Well, it, it was in was then called roasting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> and, and well and it it's like uh, it, it will so in it, Smollett like that would have like the humor would have maybe sometimes been on the person who was getting the shit beaten out of him. I don't think it, that's where the humor is here at all. It's on the it's like Jesus Christ, this guy's a fucking asshole. Is kind of what the 
the joke is. Um, but but I also think that there's an even more system, sy- systemic kind of valence here, which is uh, so like yeah. So th- there's this point, there's this other point where basically the lady booby is kind of trying to get rid of Fanny, and she she has the local justice of the peace like trump up these like charges against against them. Um, and so this is book four, chapter five. Like we get this we get this legalese this this uh, dep- uh, de- deposition poorly uh, spelled too. Yes, poorly spelled. Yeah, I'm not going to be able to get the, the kind of the illiteracy is part of the Yes. D- yeah. The deposition of like, yes, these deponents saith, and first Thomas Trotter for himself saith that on the blank of this instant October being Sabbath day between the hours of two and four in the afternoon, he zed Joseph Andrews and Francis Goodwill walking across the spell, a certain field belonging to layer scout and of the path, which lit, led us through the said field. Uh, and there he zed uh, Joseph Andrews with a knife uh, cut a one hassle twig of the value he believes of three pence or there about and he saith that the uh, said francis goodwill was likewise walking on the grass out of the said path and the said feld and did receive and carry in her hands a said twig and was so come farting eating and abating uh <laughs> said come farting. Yeah. that's in the book come farting, yes. come farting. yes uh and the said one James, word everyone one word uh, and the said james scout for himself says he verily believes the twig to be his own proper twig and etc jesu said the squire would you commit two persons to bridewell for a twig Yes, said the lawyer, and with great lenity too. For if we had called it a young tree, they would have both been hanged. Um, and so I just want to like uh, point out that like what he, what the lawyer's referring to there that if it had been a tree, they would have both been hanged. There is an act of Parliament passed in 1723 called the Black Act that basically made hanging offenses out of dozens of property crimes, and it is explicitly uh, an act aimed at solidifying the power of the new kind of emergent kind of imperial gentry. And like this, I mean, this novel clearly thinks that's fucking horrible, right? Like that that it you know that 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 the power not just of like some asshole country squire, but the legal system behind that i mean that is a huge subject of like kind of satiric rage in this novel i think you know i agree with with that a hundred percent i do think that you know you can't you but you can't just walk around and cut off a man's twig <laughs> and expect there to be no consequences <laughs> but uh but anyway but i do th- so i do think that like the kind of the class politics of this do go to that kind of like anti-orthodoxy generally that you guys are kind of talking about as far as its theological or philosophical outlook on the world. I I agree. And I would say, I mean, as I'm thinking about this, um, this is the novel that I probably like the most of his, of his three, uh, you know, long prose works of fiction that I, that I've thought the, the least about, but as I'm, as we're talking, it occurs to me that we could read Adams as, um, uh, he might have a real life external referent, like um, some scholars have suggested, but but uh, he seems to me to like ep- epitomize or embody whether he's speaking it or demonstrating it through actions, the exact ideological uh, position that Fielding himself occupied vis-a-vis those various and entwined orthodoxies, mm-hmm. so that he he does through his through his good nature as if by instinct achieve, like I said before, postures of belief or. Uh, relations to other people or institutions that are a slant of hegemonic forms 
while still sometimes espousing those hegemonic forms. Like he has, he has this tortured relation to the political dominant. And I, and it seems like, like that's a good, that's a good representation of how I would describe Fielding's works in general as being like imaginative and um, imaginatively anti-Orthodox, but nevertheless, like, uh, circumscribed by the by certain discursive limits, mm-hmm. and that's like the part of the humor in in him, and part of what what makes him an interesting character is how he functions that way. Like sometimes as the object of a joke, or um, just a vehicle of of harsh. Even when you're laughing at him, he's still a vehicle of harsh critique of those just like reprehensible behaviors mm-hmm. of the gentry. Mm-hmm. Well, I like I, I know where we we should turn to the the game soon, right? But um, I, I am kind of curious what you guys do think of. Uh, how the kind of gender discourse of this novel fits into some of the things we've been talking about. Um, I mean, I, I do think that like, unlike other 18th century satirists, I don't think Fielding thinks horny women is the problem. <laughs> I think that he actually is like, uh, you know, r- relatively, I don't know, aware of the kind of like dark implications of sort of gender spheres. I mean, but I also don't want to go too far and think and say that like, Oh yeah, he has a very kind of like 21st century, like kind of left. Yeah. The rest of the outlook because he he is he is super woke, bro. No, he 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 obviously is not that. But I also think that, like, in the context of other 18th centuries, you know, yeah. Well, I mean, just like think of it. Think of the the pretty straightforward reading of this book as a corrective to Pamela. It's a it is the story of like male virtues specifically defined as chastity, virginity, Mm -hmm. which is not the conventional definition of masculine virtue, you know, like it's, so it's, it's a sort of, it's gender flipping. Um, and that is, is itself a kind of, I mean, that's, that's a gesture, I guess, towards something like a more equitable understanding of how sex and ethical character, uh, or ethical spiritual character relate. So that's, that's something, but then, you know, I don't know if, if, um, if you bring in the, the concept of consent, uh, whether, whether that, complicates matters i mean it Mm -hmm. has to complicate them right because of the scene near the end where like people are naked people are getting into each other's beds and then and then uh (laughs) and but but i mix it up because there's so many like (laughs) (laughs) there's so many like flying tits in that part of the book where like (laughs) mountainous (laughs) (laughs) where somebody gets into the bed with slip slop and that's her real name (laughs) sorry her name is slip slop mrs slip slop please she is a high person not a low person so like uh and then adams comes in and is like get off but he grabs the wrong person so it's like those misadventures are like it's not that they're not weighing in on consent they are but they're like less obsessed with women always being the virtue objects right Mm -hmm. because like there are all kinds of people like hopping into bed with each other Well, there are all kinds of people hopping into bed with each other and all kinds of people doing all kinds of things while they're in bed. And maybe Joseph Andrews isn't. and Maybe he comes in and maybe you flop a tit out and see what happens. (laughs) And then, you know, but the thing that's really striking about it to me is that like. such an image of having trouble moving forward. Of slip slop. because i can see it very clearly in my mind for sure i can also see it very clearly (laughs) when like um oh man why did i just lose my train of oh where like pamela gives pamela's like oh sis you don't have like a cute wedding dress so i'm gonna give you the slip that's like just cleavage like that's Mm -hmm. its only description 
well, it shows off her blindingly white bazooms or whatever. <laughs> um, but like we get that, we get that, and we get that a lot once we've once we've arrived at at, and it's it's very clear how much Joseph Andrews uh, is after that fanny. You know, he's after. That is a slang. We know what that's a slang term yes. for, right? In the UK. Yes, yes of course. We, I don't have no, to say. No, it's not. Uh, it's not Henry James where it. you get the posterior and the anterior and fanny Assingham. <laughs> but can we talk, can we talk a little bit more about that scene? Do we have, do we have time that Megan brought up? Because that, that is a place where I don't want to say fielding is, is uh, anticipating Judith Butler, but there's, there's some jokiness that I don't think is yeah. necessarily motivated by like pure uh, conservative taxonomic energy yeah. um, about like not being able to mm-hmm. tell men from women. And not just like the flying yeah, yeah. the flying boobies as your uh, as your referent. Although, like, isn't he just? Isn't there like a f- full boob honking moment in that? I swear to God. Yeah, it doesn't say that he. I mean, yeah. So the the I mean the unless I'm getting it wrong because it is very like it's almost like Benny Hill sort of like people are running into different rooms and um and there's some there's some confusion there's a lot of confusion but it's it starts with Bo Didapper who is of course a, a Lord Hervey. Uh, a sort of per- person like character caricature and he was a very like much hated much loathed but but kind of powerful figure and and was accused of of being of all sorts of things from aphroditic and bisexual using terms that that um, either 20th century scholars or um, 18th century um, enemies would have thrown into circulation not terms that i would assign to him but anyway bo didapper goes into the room that where he thinks uh, fanny is sleeping and um gets into bed with slip slop who almost i mean and this is the insinuation is that she almost rapes him right well and part of it is that he he's like he it 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 totally switches intention in the sense that it goes from like what we think to be a rape and then the woman is like responding to him right right and then and so yeah she she realizes that he's not who he pretends to be he's imitating the voice of uh, joseph um, and she knows it's not Joseph, though she initially thought, "Oh boy, I, I get to finally gratify my desires for this this hot young footboy uh, from from Jersey." <laughs> but when she, even once she realizes who it is, she's she's she detains him, or then she I mean she makes a decision. I don't know well, if there's a turn here, Tristan. You're you're a good careful reader. Uh, does this track with you that she decides she's going to like make some recompense for a lost reputation or for? Uh, lost chastity by calling out rape so that she could perform her her like resistance to uh, male seduction it's a very kind of it's a very sort of ambiguous paragraph because it it does get to that that she that she it starts with that she's kind of kind of gratified like sort of desire but then like fairly unannounced within the paragraph it does shift to instead that she's going to kind of that she's going to sort of kind of take control of the situation in a way of like that that does something yeah that that goes to like reputation and these other things um i i I do think like another interest or uh, aspect of that as well that we we sort of have to consider like in the 18th century certainly is uh, class and and also um age mm-hmm. right that like that, she, that that her sort of um I, pr- protection's not the right word but but I just, she she's able to kind of manage that situation in a way that fanny i don't think we feel would be able to because she's you know i mean she's like kind of lady booby second in command right yeah. you know what i mean so like i think that there are 
the, the, the mistake is that is is one in terms of person, but also uh, Die Dapper has kind of mis- mistaken like the kind of class position as well of the sort of the the, the woman that he you know is mistakenly kind of attempting to to assault, right? And thus her vulnerability. Yes. Yeah. Whereas she is, she's impervious in some respects, though not to the to the blows of Adams, who comes in and he, he hears the cry, and he he touches the skin of Didapper because she's torn his shirt. It's too soft, and it's too soft. He assumes that that's the that's the virgin who's cried out for assistance and attacks Slipslop, and they get into a struggle that he eventually wins. And it's not until and it, by this time, Lady Booby comes in with a candle. And we start getting some some clarity as to what happens. But he it, it's it's quite clear that he puts his hand on her on her breast and realize and it's only th- it's only that which confirms what he had previously concluded as impossible because of the the um, downy chin right. or the downy beard that he touches when he touches mm-hmm. her face. So so there's like I mean like what counts as a as a as an identifying sexual characteristic um, and how that maps onto the axis of class. I think uh, I think is makes this passage interesting and not just in a in a jokey oh, way. Yeah. Again, not insinuating that Fielding is like is is trying to call attention to the the arbitrariness or the the social constructiveness of of gender necessarily, but that he is he's playing with the different ways that that men and women of different classes present when you can't when you don't have the benefit of like a fully illuminated social milia when you're operating just in darkness by feel by what is material and concretely true about them yeah and, and it's not it's right and it's not it's certainly not like a non non-normative kind of discourse that he's presented right. i mean wouldn't even really have had a concept of that but i think he does think that the way that sort of like gender is read and kind of constructed in you know popular discourse is weird and wrong in and in, in a way that he thinks and, and and foolish in some ways right so it's like yeah he's not rejecting sort of like kind of ironclad gender positions but he is complicating them i i do think is is very fair to say at the very least, if you're inclined to read Fielding as a as an overly gentleman, over gentlemanly uh, misogynist or whatever, as I think, uh, which partly the, an attitude that's that's partly unearned, uh, I think it's fair to say, and and um, that partly accounts for his his uh, taking a backseat to other writers in um, scholarship from the from the 21st century. But even if you accede to that understanding of him. You could still say that um, his panoramic vision of 18th, mid 18th century society comprehends uh, ex- gender expression that doesn't line up with those those norms. Um, mm-hmm. Whether even if even if it intimates that those that those um, those weird expressions do need to be domesticated, they mm-hmm. they are at least visible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, Katie, do you have a game for us? I do. I do have a game for you, and it has to do with something we've talked a little bit about. So we have two characters in this novel. We've got Slip Slop and we got Booby, and Sorry, they yeah, are constant. <laughs> Just what they're called. <laughs> yeah. That's mm-hmm. their names. Don't wear them out. So we've got we've got um we got Slip Slop and Booby, and they are always trying to get after Joseph Andrews and what they said they want to they want to do all kinds of things to him. But what 
uh, we can really determine. Um, they say they want to kiss them. You know, that's not true. Um, <laughs> what they really want to do <laughs> is just like snap them in half and bite them like a yeah. Twizzler, you know? And they just really want to do that. And, and they, it doesn't work for them. So it's never, so it ne- they never succeed. Hmm. And I think that there is a reason for this that we can all agree on and maybe we can help them. I think it's because they didn't read Steve Harvey's classic, Act Like a Lady, Think <laughs> Like a Man, What Men Really Think About Love, Relationships, Intimacy, and Commitment. Okay. So in this, in this work, Steve Harvey includes at the end some quick answers to the questions that you've always wanted to ask. And I think that together by answering these questions, we might be able to, um, you know, time is a flat circle. So we might be able to sort of project back something to booby and slip slop. And maybe it's not Joseph Andrews, but maybe they will, in fact, by acting like a lady and thinking like a man, <laughs> they will be able to smash, um, you know, mm. they, they smash some some ass at least. Yeah. Um, All right. Okay. Just going to ask these questions and um, let's give our best takes that will lead to success. Okay. And I'll tell you what Steve Harvey thinks too. Okay. Great. Um, how do men feel about plastic surgery, weaves, colored contacts, fake nails, etc.? cetera? How, how do they feel about it? How do they feel about well, it? Well, considering this is the 18th century and no one, I mean, you know, of a certain class position had their own hair. Mm-hmm. Uh, their, <laughs> their their trick for bathing was to just plaster on more powder. Uh, if you had any kind <laughs> of marks or marks of, of, uh, of, uh, of, of uh, STIs, you covered them with plashes of black silk. Uh, uh, you know, false noses for, for uh, kind of syphilis infections. Um, I think that the 18th century would have loved uh, plastic surgery had it really existed. Existed. Here so, come the mimesis say, cops yeah. again. Tristan being like, in the 18th century, though. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a right answer? It's, uh, are we supposed? Uh, are we anticipating what like the characters in the book would say, or what Steve Harvey thinks, or what we're trying? We think? To, I think to figure out like what the ladies in well, the book should do to. What they should have done to improve their chances of smashing. I think so. Mm-hmm. Katie, is that right? Yeah, and and we can actually use this one as an example. Tristan, that was a that was a phenomenal answer. Uh, and um, so, but it was it was um not quite what Steve Harvey <laughs> yeah. thinks. I, I didn't think that. Um, Weird. Which is yeah. which is I know right? It's where the Tristan's thinking is not always in perfect alignment with Steve Harvey. But what he says is, uh, why run the risk of something going wrong when your man is already happy with the way you look? Mm. Oh. So in fact, he's. He's sort of anti. I says, sure, it's fine for you if you want to do it. If it's something you want to do for yourself, uh, that's okay. But if, you know, but yeah, if your man is cares. not happy with the way you look, which is the case for, right. or which is a conclusion that either of these characters could draw for themselves based on Joseph's rejection, uh, then they have a different problem than Steve Harvey's hypothetical woman, who it sounds like is already in a relationship and meditating on the possibility of um, surgical alteration. So they need to spackle more <laughs> lead paint on their faces is what I'm hearing. <laughs> Always. I mean, yeah. here's here's something I think we can say um, with some confidence that um, Henry Fielding, at least, would be more attracted to these characters if they underwent certain cosmetic yes. procedures. <laughs> I think that's correct. 
I think that is a fair assessment. Okay, so we have question number two, which is, do men like shopping? Do men like shopping? This is important to know because we have to share interests. But Steve Harvey also says earlier in the book that um, that you can't tell a man directly. You have to make him guess and leave mm-hmm. clues. So, you know, it's a little hard <laughs> to communicate under these conditions. Mm-hmm. But but what, how, do, how do men feel about shopping? So, like, you know, I know some men in, in this book like shopping for fancy uh, uh, French crimson-colored velvets and such. <laughs> I was going to say, if, if they're a Frenchified fop, they like shopping. Am I right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Belle Armine and, and uh, Beau Didapper would certainly, uh, amongst, among these characters, would appreciate shopping. I think I think some I I think they should these women should conclude yes uh, because I see no fault in their in the logic they had used to try to seduce Joseph Andrews it it didn't get them there but if what they're after is a a young captain of the guards or uh, another another member of the of the servant class or household then maybe all those sweet meats maybe maybe a gifted hand me down suit from your deceased. baronet husband you know i think that i i don't see i don't see why that wouldn't work i think that's a sound philosophy for them to adopt i like that yeah okay okay i agree with this assessment again so i think the farther we get from this i think the farther we get from the act like a lady think like a man answer actually the better we do for poor slip slop and booby um but i'll tell you what steve harvey says um that yeah we'll go if you make us Mm. but think about it the men's department's on the first floor. It's so we can get in and mm. get out. We go in knowing exactly what we want and come out with it. In and out. That's what we like about shopping. Getting in and getting out. Wait, are, are you just placing emphasis or or did you add that repetition? No, that's on that's, that's there. there. That's okay. uh that's right. what he says. That's he has he has failed to account for the fact that the makeup counters are on the first floor, sir. Mm. I have thrown a wrench into your uh, yeah. plans. Well, he does not speak for me. It takes me like 45 minutes to pick out the right pair of running sneakers. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Well, here's here's a question that's deeply from Steve Harvey. It's deeply relevant to this particular work. If a man's sister doesn't like his girlfriend, will he break up with her? Oh, um, <laughs> no, because I mean, it, you can't, I mean, how would you know it's actually your sister? Right. One, yeah. I mean, it's not like we <laughs> checked them for birthmarks. That's the, we don't have enough information. You mean my sister wife? We are in the, the Pamela novelistic universe. So I'm going to say, that a that a man will care not for his sister's opinion, even if she is as intimidating and important in that region of the country as Lady Davers herself. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> well, uh, you. Uh, in fact, the the 18th century um, and Steve Harvey align on this one. His answer is hell no. <laughs> a sister doesn't oh, have to come around the okay. house. Okay, that's an Boom. idea. She's out of there. Yeah, maybe she's Steve Harvey and Squire Booby, uh, <laughs> side by each, as they say in Maine. <laughs> Katie, you live with your sister. What would happen if she couldn't come around? 
I guess that it's not going to work between me and Steve Harvey. <laughs> Which would otherwise have been an <laughs> ideal right. match. Really <laughs> optimal. Yes. yes. So here, here's your final question. And it's, um, so this novel is full of surprises. Some, uh, some more pleasant than others. But how do men feel about surprises? <laughs> well, if the surprise is she's your sister, bro. Not great. <laughs> Not great. But if the surprise is you are actually the the foundling, the, the long lost son of a of a of a gentleman whose life is is weirdly calibrated to your own sensibilities, um, then yeah, not so bad. So yeah. surprise money good, surprise incest bad. Surprise incest bad, surprise mm. daddy good. That's true. Mm. As long as your daddy is rich. Right. Or like sufficiently rich to accommodate yeah. your uh, com- relatively modest needs and aspirations. Not yes. so rich that he's not nice, I think, is what I'm hearing. Yeah. He, he seems pretty yes. nice. Rich dad, poor dad. <laughs> that's a that's an 18th century podcast on its own. <laughs> yep. That's true. <laughs> Actually, yes. Both transatlantic. Really? Make it happen. Um, Spin off. And then it's <laughs> then it's Next spin-off. spin-off, rich boyfriend, poor boyfriend. Love it. Well, um, yes, Steve Harvey agrees. Well, Steve Harvey agrees with the with the caveat with the, you know with their assessments. So surprises, uh, the fun ones. Yeah, we like them. We like them. But please, don't expect the same reaction you would have. <laughs> We're not going to go to pieces and cry <laughs> because you brought home a gift or planned a special trip or put together a nice surprise romantic dinner for us. That's, well, not very manly. I feel like this is a particular slight to Fanny who bursts into tears at, yeah. like, a fly flying too close to her face. Yes. May, may I also point out <laughs> that it exposes Steve Harvey as an adherent to a toxic postmodern masculinity that Fielding would have shat all over <laughs> while watching Parson Abraham Adams, who cries alongside anyone else who cries, especially if he cares about them, beats the ever-living fuck yeah. out of Steve Harvey for said toxic masculinity. <laughs> yes. I mean, the, especially when they, somebody shoots a puppy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he'll, he'll cry about that. He'll, but he cries when other people cry. The narrator tells us, and that narrator has never lied to me. <laughs> I mean, he's never lied to me when he said, you can skip this chapter. And I was like, yes, sir. (laughs) That's how I knew these characters weren't real people. (laughs) Yeah, right. Because the the writer kept saying, yeah, you might like this or you might not. Yeah. Yeah. Well. We've all, we've all, we're all winners here. Um, and just so you know, just so we don't make Steve Harvey look like a total bad guy, he does think it's okay for women to drive no. in the 21st century. People. I thought you were going to say for men to cry, and then I would have felt kind of bad for imagining Parson Adams beating him up. Yeah. But I don't. <laughs> well, thank you, David, for joining us. It's such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. It was a great excuse to talk to some old friends and make very, very bad jokes. <laughs> that I mean, that's like that's the vibe. Do you have any uh, Henry Fielding related uh, works that we should be uh, writing down? 
I don't know that I would go so far as to say that that it's recommended, but I did write an article um, about Henry Fielding. It came out in ELH um, in 2018 in the fall, and it's just called Secular Fielding, and it does have a, a section that deals with uh, that expands on my comments about Fielding. Joseph Andrews and uh, George Whitfield's Methodism. So that might be of interest to anyone crazy enough to listen to this whole thing. It, it's very good. I, I will go ahead and recommend it. <laughs> I assume it is. And for you bozos, that's uh, English literary history. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> uh, this has been Better Red Than Dead. You can find David on Twitter at David underscore M underscore Diamond. You can find me on Twitter at Tesslersaurus. You can find Katie on Twitter at Katie Crywo. You can find Tristan on Twitter at TJ Schweiger. You can find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Better Ed Pod, R-E-A-D, and email us at betteredpodcast at gmail.com, but only if it is not to apprise us of some long lost foundling who is now our very large son because we don't need the drama. <laughs> our intro music is Lev Bronstein by the Redskins and used with their permission. Our logo is created by Jane Bonsack of JB Design and Content. As usual, rate, review, subscribe. And, you know, for anyone who enjoyed our Halloween episodes, now that you're almost certainly uh, missing Halloween, go back and check out last year's episodes on Rosemary's Baby, The Castle of Otranto, and Legend of Sleepy Hollow, which is very good. Um, next week, we have A Clockwork Orange, and then we have Haruki Murakami's Sputnik Sweetheart after that. So thanks, comrades. Thank you.